pause whatever book of the Bible that I'm walking through um, so that I can take a few weeks to rally us around certain themes that I think are important for the year ahead. And we've been moving through the book of Revelation, which I am going to pick up in a few weeks, but I wanted to speak into the particular season that we find ourselves in. Obviously, this fall doesn't feel like the regular back to school, back to work, everything's normal, gearing up, moving into a regular rhythm. We're in a pandemic, and while the Kootenays hasn't really been hit hard directly to this point, all of our lives have obviously been altered, right? The fact that we're sitting here like this is a testament to that. Whether it's from a heightened awareness for new hygienic practices, um, physical distancing, adapting almost all of our spaces like this one, every area of our life has been impacted. Now, some of those impacts have been really, really positive, right? We've had more time with our family. We've had more time with our spouses. We've had more time to, more intentional time to homeschool our kids, right? And that's been a source of a lot of richness. But it's also been really challenging, right? We've had more time with our family and more time with our spouses. And the challenges that come from trying to live intentionally into homeschooling our kids, right? It's been the best of times and the worst of times. And I've tried to track how people have reacted to this season. And it's really varied. And the survey that I sent out saying like, how has this time impacted you, impacted your spiritual walk with Christ, and then comment on it, it was a really broad spectrum. A lot of people were kind of like moderately negative impact, moderately positive impact, but the reasons for it were incredibly varied. For some, this time has been generally positive, and for other people, it's just been really, really difficult and awkward, and they never have found, as the months tick off the calendar, they've been able to find a rhythm to the new normal. Uh, in thinking about the year ahead, it's obviously difficult to discern what to emphasize and rally around. That's been sort of my burden the last month, is God, what do you want me to put on in front of our church? But how do you do that when it feels like even anticipating what life may look like in October or November is incredibly fuzzy. I've struggled with what to say as we sort of mentally reset for the year. I know that the fall tends to be a bit more psychologically the new year than the actual new year is. I'm aware pastorally of the different seasons that people are in amidst this pandemic season the different aspirations and ambitions that people have, the different joys and sorrows, the different heartbreaks and challenges that are represented within this church family. I'm very sensitized to those. And yet one of the threads that holds all of it together is this global pandemic, COVID-19. And we're all learning on the fly what it means to follow Jesus in familiar ways, but also in new ways during these times. And that's not an insignificant challenge. Maybe it has been for some people. It hasn't been for me. It's been a pretty big and ongoing challenge. We're not the first generation of Christians to ever live through a pandemic, but this is our first pandemic experience together. And so there's a lot of pivoting that we have to do almost continually. And while that's scary, it's also comforting because I was thinking, wow, it's kind of neat that even though this is novel to all of us, we're all kind of in it together. So that can ground us with a greater vulnerability and humility to kind of say, 
what's working for you? Like, what have you found to be helpful? I'm really struggling here. And even though we might be dealing with different things in our personal or professional lives, we have this thread of adapting in a pandemic that can act as a bridge for us to support one another and encourage one another in our walk with God. We have to seek God together through this time. We, we, we need to encourage one another through this time. We need to share ideas and strategies with one another. We need to pray for one another through this. We need to love each other through this. But I also understand that that is way easier said than done. And the shape that that takes during these times is very different than the shape that it might have taken a year ago, five years ago. And so I've decided to pause our study of Revelation in order to teach through a little series called Pandemic Christianity, a faith for such a time as this. Because our faith does need to adapt during these novel and uncertain and challenging times. And there's an amazing opportunity to discover God's grace and power in a new way whenever we move into a season of life or a stage of life that we've never had to move into before. So over the next few weeks, my plan is to kind of move us through some key scriptures that I think are going to help prepare us for what lies ahead, even if we can't nail down what October is going to look like and what December is going to look like and early 2021 is going to look like. I want us to draw upon the resources that I think are unique to Christianity to prepare us how to live faithfully and to be strengthened during this time so that as time goes on, momentum is being built. Our confidence in God is growing. Our experience of God's peace and power is growing as well. I really want this series to be one that's going to encourage you to stretch your faith in God, deepen your experience of God, and maybe teach us in a fresh way how to learn to walk with God in power and in confidence and grace. And I think if we do this series and not just absorb it at an intellectual level and say, yeah, that's interesting, that's some neat ideas. So if it's not just about a intellectual learning exercise, but a curriculum that we're to practice, then it's really going to be formative and strengthening for us. So let me just pray and ask for God's blessing on this series and the time ahead. God, would you bless this church, bless this series, not so that our lives are made easier, but so that we are equipped and strengthened for what is to come. We want to be ready, God, regardless of how the details fall into place in the weeks and months ahead, regardless of how this pandemic continues to roll out, we want to be prepared every day to move into our days excited and enthusiastic to serve you, to be attentive to the opportunities around us, to love and to serve and to share our faith with those who are looking for hope amidst darkness, and we want to learn how to rely on you and trust you to receive nourishment and strength from you, refreshment. God, prepare us for what is to come through this series. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Danish, uh, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard 
who was a believer himself, he said that all people um, live in one of three stages of life. The aesthetic stage, the ethical stage, or the religious stage. Now he had a slightly different usage of those terms, but I want to teach through them and then tie them into this pandemic season that we're in. So Kierkegaard says, you take any cross-section of society, people are going to fall into one stages of life. The first, he said, is the aesthetic stage, which is the word for beauty, but he meant it more in terms of pleasure-seeking. Beautiful as in trying to craft a beautiful life by centering around pleasure and happiness and personal fulfillment. And Kierkegaard said, almost everybody starts their life at this stage, and many people continue in this stage for the rest of their life. They never graduate from it. And this is a stage in which someone is essentially living for themselves. There's no higher value directing them. There's no higher purpose that is calling them to sacrificially commit. Pleasure and happiness and beauty and self-fulfillment, those are the ideas that they are continually building their life around and trying to reinforce. That's their focal point. And Kierkegaard observed that a person living in this stage Think of, think of uh, let's say, children, for example. They, um, they resist commitments, and they're, um, they're deathly afraid of boredom. They want stimulation. And they want to be able to live in the moment and for the moment at all times. And that's why people stuck in this stage, whether young or old, avoid commitments. Because commitments lock out the opportunity to pivot in certain moments, right? If I have no commitments, if I have made no promises, then my day from a flexibility point of view is completely open. I can go and do whatever I want. But if I commit to something, even something as simple as showing up here on Sunday morning, in saying yes to that one thing, I've said no to billions of other options. And so someone in this stage is very commitment-phobic because they want to be able to have that freedom and flexibility to chase whatever is fun or interesting or stimulating in the moment. And part of their fear is, if I committed to this, and then in doing this, noticed over here something really interesting and awesome was happening, oh, that would be terrible to me. This would feel like a prison, because it's locked me out of something more fun, more interesting. The freedom to pivot away from what's difficult or inconvenient to what is fun and enjoyable is really important for someone in this stage. Now, when you think about this first stage of living, you might uh, have a certain image that comes to mind of living in a very impulsive, reckless, uh, aggressively hedonistic way. But Kierkegaard said that's often not the way this stage plays out for people. Kierkegaard said, this stage, the aesthetic stage, the pleasure-centered stage, could look very much like a man who does very little more than work a job, come home, uh, kind of flop down on the couch, watch TV, eat dinner, zone out, go to bed, rinse, repeat. He says that someone like this is still in the aesthetic stage. It's not... Um, to an extreme degree, but really this person is still structuring their life around what works for him. 
What brings me pleasure in the moment? What appeals to me? What would be the most enjoyable, relaxing thing that I could do for myself in this moment? So while the manifestation of that self-centeredness might seem tame to us, just a regular guy doing his thing, Kierkegaard said, that is a real evidence of something wrong in the soul. Because people in this stage tend to avoid or not engage the larger, more important questions in life. Or they think of those questions about God, life, philosophy, uh, reflecting on their death and the mortality, questions of faith, any kind of what we would think of as significant personal growth and work. They see that as a distraction from what's fun. The video games, the weed, the movies, the parties. That's where life is found, according to someone in this stage. And why would you want to get bogged down with these heavy, intense topics? Just live your life, man. God, purpose, are seen as distractions from a carefree life. And a carefree life of pleasure and enjoyment is seen as the ultimate. That's the goal that everyone should be working towards. Kierkegaard observed that people in this first stage tend to rotate their pleasures like a farmer rotates crops. So in order to avoid boredom and to keep things fresh, they've got to jump to a new job or new friendships or new hobbies or a new spouse or a new obsession, some kind of new distraction, new video game. And this is the pattern that people who are in this stage live within. And what Kierkegaard contributed uniquely to philosophy was he said, I think I understand why people do this and why they get stuck in this stage. He said, because it's such an effective strategy to avoid dread and despair. Kierkegaard was a philosopher, maybe the first, arguably the first, to really spend a lot of time thinking and writing about the concept of dread that he believes sat at the bottom of, in a sense, our guts or our soul. This dread that something is deeply wrong with myself and the world. And he said, what I'm not talking about is fear. Kierkegaard made a distinction between dread and fear. He said, fear has an object, right? I'm afraid of heights. I'm fearful of spiders. He said, dread is fear generalized. It's just this pervasive sense of heaviness, of threat. It's a mood that kind of settles in, and it's, when it settles in, it's very unsettling. It's like you know something is wrong, but you can't pinpoint where that feeling is coming from or what it's attached to. And it also has the sense of things are going to get worse. So he did a lot of work on thinking about how many people sense this in quieter moments. So they shut down those quieter moments and stimulate, stimulate, activity, activity, distraction, distraction, fun, 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 as a way to avoid this feeling that Kierkegaard said, this is universal. Everyone has this underneath them. 
And people in the aesthetic stage are just trying to avoid it by any means necessary. What's interesting is that the Bible makes it very clear that one of the consequences of sin in our life, and it could be particular sins that we do, but I think it's speaking to the broader issue of sin's power and hold on our hearts. The Bible sometimes describes sin as an activity, but also describes it as a power. And in Proverbs 28, we read that the wicked flee when no one is pursuing them. It's an interesting observation that Solomon has. The wicked flee though no one pursues, one translation says. That's a good description of what it means to live in dread. It's the sense that I have to be on the run all the time. There's something that's chasing me down. I can't localize it, but I just need to ignore it, um, get away from it, suppress it. And a simple way to do that is to immerse yourself in pleasure and happiness, keep things positive, keep yourself distracted. And dread was something that came out of Kierkegaard's own lived experience. He didn't just study this abstractly, he lived through it. In his younger years, um, late teens, early 20s, he was very popular, very charismatic, lots, huge social network, a real partier. He was someone who drank heavily, had lots of sexual conquests. Um, generally speaking, he, w- he, said, he would say, I lived in a stage for much of my life. I centered my life ra- around pleasure. But he held himself inside the dread long enough to realize all this pleasure-seeking, this way of living that everyone else looked at and was like, oh, look at this guy, life of the party. He said it was a facade. Living for himself, he, he began to realize, really did begin to take a massive toll on his spirit and on his soul. In fact, in his private diary in 1836, Kierkegaard wrote, I just returned from a party of which I was the life and the soul, right? I was a centerpiece. Wit poured from my lips. Everybody laughed. Everybody admired me. But I went away and I wanted to shoot myself. Kierkegaard identified that if you live in this stage long enough where what you're going to center around is pleasure and happiness and comfort, The great irony is that even though you're devoting so much energy to avoid dread, to avoid despair, you'll you'll never be able to outrun it. You'll never be able to out-distract yourself. Dread and despair will find you because as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. You can't live in rejection of God, in ignoring God, in suppressing the most important questions of life, and expect to thrive and find life and find healing and find hope and peace. Now for some, Kierkegaard believed that avoiding dread and despair would eventually prompt them to leap into a second stage. That they would realize, this way of living just isn't working. To be centered around myself and all about pleasure and happiness. Hedonism is... Fun in the short term, destructive long term. i got to figure out a different way. And he said, this is where people make the jump to the ethical stage. Or we might talk about the moral stage. 
And this is where someone says, okay, I'm going to take on direction. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to straighten up and fly right. I'm going to commit to a moral code or find a moral code and live for that. I'm going to, I realize that a lack of commitments is part of my problem. I'm going to commit to some cluster of values or ideals that'll keep me on the straight and narrow. I'm going to start taking responsibility for my life, for my actions. I'm going to seek consistency. I'm going to try and live with integrity. And people in this stage largely renounce the first stage. And they commit themselves to, in their mind, what matters most. They've resolved to live a good life. I'm going to be a good person. And I'm going to put time and energy into that commitment. I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm going to live it. And while this stage sounds like a really good movement from a pleasure-seeking life to an ethical life, Kierkegaard said, this stage, in some ways, is more exhausting and more oppressive than living for pleasure. He understood what the Bible taught, which is that a self-willed, a self-righteous project, ethical striving, however noble, however well-intended, will always end up in the same place, dread and despair. Romans 7, 15, Paul says, I don't understand what I'm doing because I don't practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Paul says, when I observe myself, I realize I can't even live up to my own ideals. I know what I should do. I want to do it, and yet I find myself doing the totally opposite thing. In Romans, a few verses later, he says, I don't do the good that I want to do, but I actually end up practicing the evil that I don't want to do. I'm trying to live a moral life. I'm trying to live a good life. I'm trying to focus on what matters most. And I'm terrible at it. So he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Salvation, Kierkegaard wrote, from dread and despair isn't possible through self-help or self-mastery. We don't have the resources within us to overcome dread and despair and to really take hold of the life that we sense we want, we sense is available, but we're not sure how to grab it. And what Kierkegaard helped people understand is that living for pleasure can mask your sinfulness, your brokenness, right? You can avoid it, just focus on the fun and the distraction and the pleasure. But he said, what's sometimes even harder is when you try and turn around and say, I'm going to be a good person. Because that reveals your sinfulness. You will never more quickly discover what a deceptive person you are until you make the ambition to always tell the truth and do not lie. When you set that as your ambition, you will become sensitized to all the ways that you skirt the truth, avoid the truth, massage things, lie by omission. Sometimes you'll be even um, sensitized to how much you just outright lie to protect yourself. Paul in Romans 7 says, is the law, which is God's instructions to us, is the law sin? No. He said the law reveals my sin. I wouldn't have known what sin is if it wasn't for the law. For example, I wouldn't have known that coveting was wrong if God hadn't said, don't covet. 
And Kierkegaard said, that's why this stage is so difficult and it leads to dread and despair. Because even if you want to live a good moral life, the more you lean into that vision, the more you will realize how far short you fall consistently. Even in areas that you maybe previously thought, well, I, I think I'm pretty good in this area. I definitely have work over here, but I'm pretty solid here. Even in these areas, you, become to be, you, you come into a deeper awareness that I can't close this gap between my intentions and my actions. And Kierkegaard said, left to our own devices, these are the only two foundations upon which you can build your life. These are the stages that human beings are stuck in. Pleasure-seeking or a self-centered, moral, ethical uh, project of improvement, progress. We're stuck in either narcissistic self-interest or really exhausting ethical reform. And he believed that that's why most of humanity lived lives of quiet desperation. Because regardless of these two paths, dread and despair kind of wait for you at the end of the road. Unless, Kierkegaard said, you could find a way into a different stage, into the third stage. Which isn't a stage in the sense that you can graduate into it, but it, it is available to anybody. And he called this the religious stage. Now today, we might think of religious and um, more readily attach it to the second stage. We might think of someone who becomes religious is like ethically reforming. I'm gonna become a good person. I'm gonna start going to church, read my Bible, pray, uh, help the poor. That's not the way Kierkegaard used the word religious. He meant the word religious to mean throwing ourselves wholly upon the mercy of God, to completely yield control over, of our lives over to God. Total dependence on Christ for the foundation of your life and your identity and your purpose. Salvation from dread and despair, Kierkegaard observed, could only be found in a savior outside of ourselves. You can't be saved from the works, whether those works are grounded in trying to distract and please yourself or trying to reform yourself. Ephesians 2.8 says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. So Kierkegaard said there is a rescue from these two traps of living for pleasure or living for some kind of moral code. But it's only opened as a gift from God. And he said this is the great leap of faith because whether you're jumping from stage one or stage two, you're abandoning your own strategies as the source for salvation and hope. And you're saying, God, I don't have the ability to save myself, either in this life or the next. I need you to do that. I need you to be my savior. You're turning your life over to a higher power. You're casting yourself on the mercy of God as a sinner who can't save themselves in a meaningful way. And you're beginning to learn to put your faith and trust in Christ in a new way and in a powerful way. And then, as you learn to follow Jesus, you begin the dread and the despair that is there from being disconnected from God and disconnected from who you were meant to be, your identity in Christ, your life and purpose in Christ, that begins to be uprooted as the fruit of the Spirit breaks through the hard ground. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. 
and areas that were overgrown by fear and despair and anxiety and anger and bitterness and shame and guilt and harshness and narcissism, those get broken up. And slowly we become transformed. But it's not because we're trying so hard to be good. It's because we're continually walking with Jesus and who he is is rubbing off on us. And his spirit is bringing to life things in us that need to be brought to life and is uh, sometimes gently, sometimes forcefully putting to death in us things that are choking out the life that God has for us. And I share these three kind of stages this morning because I think they map on really well to three ways that you can respond as a person during a time of a pandemic. You can just say, I do feel dread. I have despair creeping at the door. I don't know where it's coming from. Things seem like they're going to be getting worse. You know what? I'm going to double down into just worrying about myself, my own pleasure, uh, living life to the fullest. And that for me means maximizing my own enjoyment and happiness in the moment. Or you can say, to avoid dread and despair, I'm going to get strict with myself. I'm going to double down on striving. Uh, This is a time where I kind of realize, okay, pleasure-seeking isn't the way to go, but I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm going to set more goals. I'm um, I'm going to strive to be a better and more focused person. And I'm going to save myself through my own um, self-righteous efforts. Or you can say, the solution to this dread that I feel around me is to cast myself on Christ. And like to seriously do it, not just on a Sunday morning when you sing a song or when it's convenient, but to move through my day saying, I am going to learn what it means to build my life on Jesus. And those are really in broad strokes. I think that's Kierkegaard's genius. It's quite simple, but those are the three ways that you can move through these next few months. Just focus on yourself, pleasure. Focus on yourself, reform, and try and build a better life under your own power. Or turn your life over to Christ. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God recognize that it isn't simply this pandemic that is the cause of this dread and this despair and this anxiety and this deep uncertainty. That is a symptom of a deeper issue, which is a disconnection between yourself and the living God. So the question at the start of the series that I hope we'll reflect on this week is which kind of path are you going to take? Now, many people in the church think that they're Christians because they've moved from the first stage to the second. I used to be really, really self-centered and selfish and narcissistic. Then I decided to become a much better person, and I want to look to the Bible for guidance. I want to start praying and being a good person. So they think that what it means to become a Christian is just moving into that next stage, moral or ethical reform. Stop drinking, stop partying, stop having sex outside of marriage, whatever, whatever the um, key hot-button issues for you might be. But that movement is just self-righteous reform. It might be well-intended. It's not terrible. But at its root, you're simply saying, I'm going fi- to fix things myself. 
yeah, with God's help, but like it's going to come from me. Kierkegaard said the gospel is something very different than simply just trying to become a better person. I mean, we're going to celebrate communion in a few minutes. Like, what are we celebrating? Are we celebrating the fact that all of us graduated ourselves from being self-centered to now good moral people? Is that what we're celebrating? We're walking around the room high-fiving each other. Great job, Rick. Great job, Melissa. We did it. Look at how much better we are. Look where we used to be. And we pulled ourselves up from that pit. And now we're better than other people in our class, other people in this community, other people in our workplace. No. We're celebrating a completely different message. That while we were still sinners, while we were still striving to fix our own life, or to live life how we think is best, whether through pleasure or through being a good person, Jesus died for us so we could have full access to God's love and grace as a gift. So you don't have to try. You don't have to try and perform your way into a relationship with God. You don't have to try and earn it. You don't have to double down on Bible and prayer and going to church in the hopes that maybe then God would love you and accept you and receive you as his own. No, because of what Jesus has done, we can receive from God simply by trusting in him salvation and hope and then be God's new life begins to form in us. And do we change? Do we reform? By God's grace, absolutely. But it's a result of grace in our life. And the good news of Christianity is that the gospel opens up a third way. You don't have to be stuck in a self-centered way of living anymore. Jesus has come into our mess. He's died in our place. He's absorbed the filth and the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation that should have been leveled against us. And through his resurrection, he's begun a new creation project that you can step into right now that stretches out forever. Because of Jesus, you can gain access to God's shalom and peace. It's the only thing that can overwhelm that existential dread and despair. In the midst of a pandemic, Jesus holds out an invitation an invitation to leave behind self-centered, self-defeating, self-condemning ways of living. But the only path out of those traps is Jesus himself. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father through me. No one exits these traps outside of me. I hold the keys, he says in Revelation. And if I open a door, no one can shut it. And I'm the only one who can open this door. If you are a Christian this morning and you have drifted from this path, from this foundation of total dependence on Christ, slip more into moralism, maybe even slip back into more like, you know what, times are tough. I'm just going to start worrying about me and my own. The call this morning is to repent and use this time of communion to come back to the priority, to come back to the author and the perfecter of your faith. And if you are a non-Christian hearing this, the message is the same, to repent, to say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I can't live this way anymore. God's arms are open wide. His invitation to you is counter-conditional. He has paid the price so that you could come.
you can have access to life in his name. Let's pray. God, we want to...